value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the U.S. Lens. I'm Ron Insana, Senior Advisor to Schroeder's, joining you today to talk about ESG, but rather coincidentally, through a U.S. lens. Marina Severinovsky is the Head of Sustainability for North America, who is focused on ESG and how American investors should view it in a context of differing global views, especially given the current realities on the ground around the planet. And she joins me now to talk about exactly Exactly that. Marina, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Ron, for having me. All right, let, let's start first with uh, just before we get into the details of, of ESG and even ESG from a, a U.S. perspective, there is so much going on in the world, so much of it at the moment tragic, that, that it's, it's, it's hard to shift our focus back to things like ESG when there's a raging war in Ukraine, when China's back on lockdown because of COVID. Uh, how do we put that ESG world into perspective against the backdrop that 2020 is currently providing? Um, I mean, I think maybe it's because, you know, being a hammer, everything looks like a nail to me. But I would say that ESG is embedded in all these things. I mean, if we kind of have seen it recently, the, the sort of questions about the classification of weapons, for example, you know, how do you think about uh, weapons as kind of in an ESG con context um, if they're needed, for example, in a case like this by, you know, a sovereign nation trying to um, fight off, you know, clearly completely warranted aggression, right? So there's been that sort of interesting dynamic in the market kind of talking about how to frame weapons investing, which we probably couldn't have imagined that conversation just, just a very short time ago. Um, there's also all the implications that, that um, you know, the war brings up around sort of sustainability. And what do we expect of companies like a Starbucks or a McDonald's, right, that are operating in Russia? You know, we've seen what, what they've been pressured to do by investors. And it's very well beyond kind of in the past where companies could just say, well, we're just following the rules. Um, now companies are expected to take a stand. So it's it certainly kind of indicates what the expectations of shareholders and stakeholders are for, you know, for companies um, in these sorts of situations. Um, I think also, I mean, again, another thread to to this sort of dynamic um, is, you know, the question about, um, you know, being reliant on uh, fossil fuels and especially fossil fuels from, you know, from places like Russia that are, you know, kind of prone to controversy, violence and, you know, create obviously, you know, creates a lot of risk um, for investors. And so does that going forward, this is again in the markets, the conversation, does that sort of precipitate a quicker, you know, transition um, to alternative energy sources? So um, I would agree with you. There's there's a lot to think about in the markets, but many of those things um, can be looked at from a sustainability standpoint. And part of that, I think, is the fact that sustainability, properly understood, is not this thing apart. Like here's everything, and then we have separately sustainability. Mm -hmm. You know, ESG is baked in. It's just embedded in in the world. Um, and that I think is the message that I have for investors broadly is that it isn't to be understood as something separate. It's just a lens through which we can pretty much view everything that's happening. If I could pick up on that latter point about particularly sure. the dependency on, on fossil fuels in the United States, which you've been focusing on of late, and the way in which to approach investors about ESG, there's this raging debate. There are some who are suggesting, listen, if we'd been drilling as much as we could have been drilling 
or as much as we were drilling in 2019 and 2020, we wouldn't be having this problem. We'd be self-sufficient. We need to drill more, get more oil, get more natural gas, which we could then export, uh, assuming that there are terminals to export it. Um, and we would be free of some of the concerns even as we apply sanctions to an energy producer like Russia. Then there's another side that says, listen, if we'd started worrying about this during the Arab oil embargo in 1973 and we're free of fossil fuel dependence, again, this wouldn't be an issue. How do you square that circle with American investors? You can't even really decide on the best way to go. Yeah, and it's a very fraught moment to be arguing that question, right? If, if but for this. Um, but, you know, on some level, both of those answers are right. You know, we would be in a different situation kind of one way or the other. But I think that the structural trend towards decarbonization in the world and a concern for sort of climate change and mitigating climate change now has gotten rolling in a way that five years ago it hadn't been. And I think that even as we go through this episode where there's obviously it's easy to like look back and say, if only we had done this or that. I mean, I certainly fall on the side, obviously, that we should have started to transition earlier. Um, and, and by the way, the, you know, kind of the the um, ESG industry has been saying that for a long time. It's just that sort of governments and corporates weren't really listening until you know fairly recently when you really started to see a very fast pace of sort of, you know, folks getting on board. Um, and as we say, maybe it was a little bit delayed and, and that puts us in the situation that we are today. But I don't think it derails the sort of long-term structural trend that now we have 80% of governments in the world who have kind of made a net zero pledge and more and more companies are doing the same. I don't think we can roll back the clock I and mean, we can be sort of nostalgic and say that, you know, had we drilled more and become more self-sufficient or indeed kind of, I think the better variant, you know, had we kind of invested more in, in clean energy and become self-sufficient that way. I think the point is that we have to move forward now um, and self-sufficiency is important. If we're going to take one path or the other, it's probably not backwards to more fossil fuels. It's sort of forwards <laughs> to, you know, to more to, um, to more energy efficiency and sort of new energy sources. And that's an economic decision now, too, just given the sort of obviously how the costs have changed of, of sort of different um, energy sources. Marina, uh, Jamie Dimon, the, the, the chair and CEO of, of, of J.P. Morgan, uh, just recently suggested that the U.S., adopt a Marshall Plan for energy. The Marshall Plan, of course, was a plan in the post-World War II environment in which the U.S. spent a great deal of money helping to rebuild Europe after it was destroyed by World War II. And it oftentimes is used as a, an example of how when a country marshals enough assets and enough effort, it can change uh, the outlook for either a region that had been destroyed or uh, an environment that needs to be changed. Is that something that we need to do? So I can't pretend to have full familiarity with his sort of proposal. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of have to punt on that. But, but you know, I, I think the fact that there is that this is the discussion that we're thinking in a sort of U.S. specific way about how we approach these issues is exactly what I want to get at and sort of what I've been you know talking about and writing about lately, which is that, you know, um, we can't be prescriptive with respect to kind of the priorities, you know, in Europe or other parts of the world that, you know, uh, American problems require American solutions. Um, and so, I'm, you know, happy, obviously, you know, he's a very knowledgeable person um, and often kind of full, full of good ideas. In fact, I remember sort of the letter that he wrote to shareholders um, on the eve of the sort of global financial crisis, disavowing, you know, subprime uh, mortgages. <laughs> so he's been preaching in the past, right? Um, and so that's, you know, probably a, 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 maybe a good start there, a good start, obviously, with kind of the policy, um, you know, some of the policy priorities of this administration. Um, you know, we've got obviously regulatory tailwinds as well in, in same, the same direction, right, of understanding climate risk, 
um, you know, measuring the kind of financial implications of climate risk, thinking about solutions. So, I mean, that that's the good thing is that you have to kind of home home grow, um, you know, ideas about how to resolve these issues, um, you know, specifically for America. So, again, you know, not wanting to kind of opine on the specifics of his plan, I think it is the right approach to be having, you know, these sort of solutions being discussed because that is the the travel, the the kind of you know the direction of travel and the trend down which we need to go. All right. So let's let's take off some of those things you said: policy, regulation, corporate action, yeah. investor interest. All of those being important. Let's start with policy. Um, the Biden administration wants to do a lot. Republicans and, and again, not a political statement. This is just a reality of Washington mm. right now. Aren't entirely behind his plans or spending plans for that matter when it comes to climate. Where where do we sit with respect to policy? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, look, obviously, you know, friendlier policy from the, this administration than the prior one. That's a low bar. Um, but I think I think we always have to be aware that the U.S. is a pendulum. So everything that is sort of put in place now, you know, can be kind of relitigated later. Um, and so I think as investors, you know, we kind of look for those sort of broader trends. You know, what is, you know, um, again, from kind of a, a policy standpoint and a regulatory standpoint, what can hold? Um, and, you know, as investors, we look very closely. It's, you know, it's not for us to kind of make the moral judgments or, or kind of you know, think about things outside of, you know, financial risk, which is what we're focused on. And for us, it's very clear, um, you know, that, that there's certain industries and categories that are going to have, you know, tremendous trouble transitioning that, you know, you know, frankly, um, we might want to avoid and other areas we want to sort of put capital into to, to aid transition and other areas, indeed, that it can be enablers of transition that you in particular want to sort of source capital to. Um, so I think it's, you know, very dangerous to just kind of hang one's hat on policy in the U.S. just because it is ever shifting. Right? Every couple of years we have an election um, and things can, can turn around. Um, I think, you know, from a regulatory perspective, you know, the, there's, there's definitely a, a, a mindfulness about kind of what we're putting in place and the degree to which it can be challenged, right, which sort of means that you you, you try to put in a kind of, you know, a regulation that, that's kind of less, you know, uh, or, or more defensible, right, over time, um, less objectionable overall um, to different constituencies because you want it to sort of hold. Um, and then, yeah, as we said, as you said, there's kind of investor views um, and then there's sort of corporate activity or corporate action. And as I, as I mentioned, you know, uh, companies every day, you're seeing more and more companies, you know, make voluntary sort of climate commitments in a public way. Um, there's a trend in that direction. And I think that shareholders like us are looking very closely at how companies are behaving in this regard. We've um, recently published really for company consumption for our, our investee companies, a blueprint around our engagement efforts going forward, tied to our own decarbonization commitment as as a you know a firm, via our financed emissions, and it's really tied to us being able to sort of um, influence our investee companies in the same direction. We're not alone in this. You know, most institutional investors are thinking this way. So when a company sort of thinks about its future, right? There's the sort of shareholders. There's other broader stakeholders. You know, to include regulators and the government. Um, yeah, can I let me if I can public ask opinion you about that. as well. Yeah, yeah, sorry, let me go ask ahead. about the regulatory part, which is Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, uh, yeah. put out a plan yesterday that involves uh, obviously more transparency and, and accounting for the costs, uh, the environmental costs, if you will, social costs uh, of any good or service that may well be produced. It's, it's out there for public comment. People are reviewing it. And, and it's not uncontroversial. There are some people who think it goes too far and others who don't think it goes far enough. Where ha, Have you had time yet to digest the proposals from the SEC and what, what they may mean to investors in public companies? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, we haven't read the entire 510 pages, or I personally haven't. But but <laughs> what do you, you do know, with absolutely. your free time? Marie? I know exactly. But we have, um, I think, you know, from the perspective of having expected this, right? Um, you know that these these sort of proposals around disclosure. I mean, this is on the climate side, and obviously uh, we're also looking for kind of human capital disclosure. Is you know, it's a significant step forward in sort of the world's largest financial market. It does make a substantial difference, I mean, to what we need, which is the investor's ability to make informed decisions about, you know, kind of the the, the exposures and the risks that face public companies in the U.S. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, you the, the information that's being asked for is, is pretty closely aligned with um, other kind of frameworks and, you know, consistent with disclosure that is required of global peers. Um, not everything's exactly matched up. There's some, you know, there's some some elements that are a bit different, and there's scope for these disclosures to improve or kind of, you know, um, become more robust going forward. And that's that's the case everywhere. But at the very least, it, it does mark a step forward in a market that's ha been kind of behind in this regard. So, you know, we're looking for clarity on how the proposal is going to be implemented, the kind of practical effect on public reporting, but certainly the ambition that is described there, we think, is laudable. Um, and again, it puts us in, in kind of better lockstep with what's happening with the rest of the world and what companies are, you know, facing in terms of expectations elsewhere from investors. I mean, at its kind of root point, you know, the, the ability to inform investors better about the risks that are kind of inherent to what they're buying, um, you know, is, again, a, a laudable thing. And I think we could argue, right, about the kind of the, the details of sort of scope one through three, et cetera, and kind of materiality and so forth. But again, the direction of travel is towards more more disclosure. Um, and we're just looking for it to be, you know, um, to sort of be sens sensible um, and again, aligned with what we see in the rest of the world. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. You make a point in your writings that, that, that the ESG perspective is not just E, and that has also <laughs> propped up in a big way in the United States lately, whether and again, I'm only using the company name in the context of what's transpired, not as an investment vehicle. Disney facing blowback from its employees and some of its shareholders over its positions on certain bills that are being passed in Florida or Starbucks and the unionization effort that's underway there. CEO leaves. The founder, Howard Schultz, comes back and tries to reestablish relations with baristas, if you will. The, mm. the, the human capital part is becoming increasingly important. In fact, Disney employees threatened to walk out over Disney's position in Florida. So how is that encompassed in, in, in how investors view this process now that employees in particular are becoming increasingly vocal about how their employees behave in certain jurisdictions? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're spot on, right? Um, I sort of say, you know, ESG starts with E, but it doesn't end with E. And, uh, you know, it, 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 there's more components there. And it, it, again, it all has to do with what sort of what we uh, investors, but just just everyone, right? What what folks think of as a just company or kind of what the, the kind of things that people concern themselves with. And the pendulum does swing, you know, in terms of sort of companies having power versus, you know, workers having more. Um, and I think we are, you know, moving in that direction. Obviously, the kind of pendulum is swinging. Um, again, public opinion, the fact that information is so easily shared today. I mean, all those things are very different for companies. Um, you know, uh, Just Capital has surveyed that, you know, I make reference to this in my writing, um, you know, U.S. investors on, again, kind of how they define, you know, the most important um, issues for themselves that fall into the sort of sustainability umbrella. And it is living wages. It is, you know, kind of community issues and workers issues. And that's not surprising. We've lived through 
a very difficult time with COVID in the U.S. more so, I think, than other places, obviously lacking the sort of social safety net that exists in other parts of the world, already coming to this period of time with, you know, baked in sort of much more fraught, you know, kind of like racial issues in our country um, and wealth inequality uh, and disparity type issues. So just exacerbated by what we've all sort of lived through in recent years, it brings all of it to a head. And so I think, you know, from the perspective of kind of, you know, Schroeder's from an investment standpoint, you know, a lot of the research that we're working on now has to do with human capital has to do with the value of people, right? The value of people to an enterprise, the value of people to valuations of a company. You know, people are not a depreciating asset, right? So how accountant looks at them. But the reality is they are, are the, the asset that makes all the other assets work. And so we're working on a kind of a proprietary framework about how you, you really quantify the value of, of people and the value of culture to an enterprise. Um, and that's a very public conversation now. We're hearing that from many, many investors. And so I think, you know, it kind of puts companies in a position to sort of see how valuable and important their employees are. And obviously that gives the workers more power. Um, I think, you know, in terms of our engagement, um, sort of, again, call to action, our blueprint, everything we're saying to companies we invest in, three out of the six sort of um, theme areas around um, engagement are social areas. I mean, everything is social, right? Even, even climate. Um, right, because you have to think about how it affects that transition. As we said, workers, unions, communities. We talk about kind of just transition, right? You know, um, you know, who who are we leaving behind? Who's going to need retraining or reemployment? Um, so everything at the end of the day does come down to people. And I think that you know, we as investors and as an industry are becoming much more alive to that fact. Even in Europe, they've you know are publishing kind of a social taxonomy. Um, they've certainly been all climate all the time. So this is a very new dynamic. And I think in the U.S. even more so, um, where, you know, again, when we look at our investor base, when we look at kind of American priorities, they're much more evenly balanced between um, environment and social. And so it's very key to how we have to talk about ESG here. And with respect to that, let, let me just follow up, because American investors are also, over the last 40 years or so, quite comfortable with the notion that that shareholder returns to a certain extent, uh, to a large extent, mean more than anything when it comes to corporate performance. It, it, and slowly, it seems some investors are being retrained, others are adopting that a different point of view more quickly. But it is critical and hard to break habits when you're so accustomed to looking at the stock market as a vehicle for capital appreciation, and not necessarily having some of the the softer side, if you will, uh, baked into the cake. So how do, how do in American investors in particular refocus so that maybe they're more aligned with these changes that are inevitably coming? Yeah, you know, it, it's not so soft is the thing, right? It crystallizes and hardens over time. That's the thing. And that's, I think, what we want to sort of explain to folks. We have a tool in-house called SustainX where we measure the impact the companies have on society but they don't have to pay that impact. Like, like they basically free ride on society. So you have kind of negative externalities and the world just pays for them for you so you can, can continue to be profitable. And that's cool, but it's not, gonna, it's not gonna go on forever because there's increasingly, as you know, kind of, you know, carbon pricing and there's, you know, minimum wage legislation and there's, you know, minimum tax legislation and there's sugar taxes and, and you know, um, the, uh, you know, plastics taxes, all, all of these sort of negative externalities are starting to, you know, because of the kind of will of society, of broader society and governments, um, 
because that is the zeitgeist that we're in, we're kind of asking companies to bear more of their own burden, that, that does dent profitability. Now, it's not happening overnight. It's just a question of the sort of the direction of travel. Do we think in the future there'll be less of this or more of this? It's very likely to be more. And so it is hard. It's just sort of hardening over time, as I said. Um, I think, you know, from the perspective of, I think it is very misleading, right, to sort of say to investors that ESG will always work um, every time, like a magic pill or a panacea, and I, I talk about this too, that that's a mis-selling of the concept. Um, you know, today, obviously, given what's going on in the world, you know, being light on fossil fuels in a portfolio has been a painful thing. Does that take away from the multi-decade trend to come, where again, you know, governments and corporates are decarbonizing, and it is, you know, quite clear that there's going to be a, a huge avalanche of money moving from sort of more carbon intensive areas, to less carbon intensive areas, and to kind of, you know, climate mitigation and carbon capture on all of these sort of new technologies around mitigating the, the issue. Um, that's going to happen. That is the direction of travel. So the question for an investor is, you know, uh, you know, how do you want to sort of be positioned given that 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 flow? That's not a short term thing, right? Short term, we obviously are seeing what's happening in the markets, but in the long run, that's how we over time transform and position a portfolio to take advantage of it. So I think that's the conversation we have to have with investors in a really pragmatic way. There is also the component of sort of, as you said, some investors are, are rethinking like values alignment. And we always point to kind of younger generations and the millennials and the Gen Zs and women and people who are kind of coming into, into wealth as, you know, you have generational um, transfer, wealth transfer, where people are saying, I want my, my money to sort of be in accordance with my values. I want to make an impact on certain things that are important to me. And that is a, definitely a component of sustainable investing. But that isn't, you know, that isn't all of it. The, the, the bulk of it really is where you, you're integrating sustainability into um, your investment process in order to mitigate these kind of longer term risks or to at least to understand those longer term risks so that you can mitigate them and to be on the right side of these longer trends. Um, and, and sustainability is a very long term sort of investment style. Um, and so that, that I think is the conversation that we need to be having is that it's not soft or sort of squishy. It's about um, sort of looking ahead at the kind of risk that will come into a portfolio and wanting to be prepared for it over time. All right. Marina, thanks very much. Appreciate your insights. Excellent conversation today. Thank you. Marina Severinovsky is head of sustainability North America for Schroeder's. I'm Ron Ansana. Thanks for joining us on this U.S. Lens. We will talk to you again soon. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders Podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well.